0: Welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter, ideas shape markets, ideas can change the world. For those of you listening to this podcast, you know there is a genome, a DNA, if you will, of leadership that threads everything together. All the issues we talk about uh, that are uh, present, uh, that are in flux, uh, that aren't necessarily decided upon, And um, what we're learning through these discussions we're having is there's a mindset. There is a mindset we can learn uh, to deal with change. And uh, in certain cases, like in today's times, crisis, which seem to go hand in hand. Uh, The other day, I just got what a wonderful gift uh, because I was able to listen to a gentleman who has written a book on this very thing. And also uh, is the leader, uh, associate director of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative at Harvard University. He's the author of You're It, Crisis Change, How to Matter When It Matters Most, Eric McNulty. Eric, great to have you in the great conversation.
1: Ron, thank you so much for having me.
0: I I, I gotta tell you, and I'm being sincere, when I first saw the term meta-leadership, Meta seems to me as something fundamental, right? Something overarching. Am I correct on that, being a good old journalist background
1: like yourself? That's right. And that's if you take it apart, the meta prefix is meant to prompt people to take that look at that bigger picture, take that broader sort of systemic view of what's happening, not just what's right in front of you, but what are who are the stakeholders, what's going on, what, what is that bigger picture? Uh, and, and if you're going to lead, you have to have that in mind. And then leader, the second half there, you know, I talk about leaders as people who lead. And I make that distinction because we often use leader as meaning senior executive or someone at the top of a hierarchy. Um, I don't think it's restricted to those people. I think that you could lead from where you are. When you see change that needs to happen and do something about it, you're leading. When you bring people together to achieve things they couldn't achieve alone, you're leading. And so having that bigger view, being willing to step up, take the action to actually lead, which takes some courage. That's what being a meta leader is. That's right. And most
0: people live their lives. um, What did Thoreau say in quiet desperation? And uh, they don't have the tools to seize the day like you're talking about in in your meta leadership uh, uh, education. So so let's get, let's dive into it. How do I see clearly the big picture?
1: Well, I think I want to just before I answer that, say, you know, the point you're making is so true that you know, many of the people I work with are deep technical experts, be it in security, preparedness, whatever the you know, healthcare you know, physicians, and they are put into positions where they're expected to lead. And they are not, as you said, given the skills, taught how to think. And that's part of what we do in our, in our program at Harvard is try and give people those skills to be able to move forward. So when you to think about doing that, we, we put together this meta-leadership framework, and it's intentionally simple. It's got three dimensions. The person, so who are you? How well do you know yourself, your strengths, your weaknesses? What's your origin story? Sort of where did you come from that drives you? What's your destiny story? What's the impact you want to have on the world? Then there's a situation. Understanding the context in which you are trying to lead. What's going on? Who's involved? And then connectivity is the third dimension. How do you think not just about leading down to your team, but up to your boss, maybe to a board, uh, folks who may not know as much about a situation as you do, across to the different units within your organization, uh, those different business units or functional areas, and then beyond to other stakeholders, which could be the public, could be political officials, regulators, industry groups... When you're thinking about leading, you, have, you can have influence over all of those different stakeholders. And that's what you need to be thinking about as you try and pull them together, unify their effort toward uh, whatever the mission objective happens to be.
0: Let's, let's rest on that for a second. Influence. Let's describe the nature of influence because most people who are not in, like you said, a formal position of leadership. I don't think they realize the impact they can have if they have the courage and the tools to actually, again, seize the day with some of these principles you're talking about. What, what have you discovered about influence?
1: Um, the first piece is that if you're going to have influence, you have to be invited to the table. And as my old friend, Warren Dennis used to say, if you wanna be a better leader, be a better person. So just being the kind of person someone wants to have at the table Do you show up on time? Are you prepared? Are you a team player? Are you focused on the mission? Are you a net contributor? Those things all make people want to have you at the table, which gives you influence. Your technical expertise gives you influence. If you know a lot about a given subject and you can bring that knowledge, um, that helps as well. Uh, If you are willing to help others, we know humans are hardwired for what's called reciprocity. Which is if you do me a favor, I'm more likely to you know I want to do you a favor in return. We try and keep those social balance sheets balanced, keep them in order. And so, um, thinking about that, and again, looking to where you contribute, we always talk about the animating principle of meta leadership is how can I help make you a success? When you walk into a room with that attitude, people are open to being influenced by you because. You're invested in their success, and they in turn will be invested in your success. So it's not how much you know, although that can can help. It's not how much power you have, although there's also influence from having a lot of authority. It really is who are you as a person? Are you a net contributor? Are you invested in that larger mission and helping everyone succeed? That's what gives you influence. And that has to be sincere. That is something you're not making up. That's right. Yeah,
0: that's that or manipulative in any way. I, I just love that. And good old Warren Bennis, I'm glad you quoted him. I, I I'm quite I have read him for years. So better leader, better person, net contributor. So we have influence now. Now let's go into if we can some of the, the aspects of the framework, if you don't mind.
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, and I think that it really starts with self-knowledge. Um, And this is, you know, we encourage people to to journal, which feel, you know, can feel a little squishy to to some people, but I've gotten some pretty um, grizzled, you know, tough folks to begin writing down and reflecting on when things have gone well, when they haven't gone well, what they're learning about themselves, they find it is really helpful. You've got to be able to be comfortable in your own skin. You have to know who you are, what your strengths are so that self-knowledge is really important the
0: The greek mantra know thyself
1: know thyself exactly it's one of the oldest things we've got we've carried forward through thousands of years of humanity uh and the self-awareness you know to to know when you're in a room are you being well received or not what's what's the vibe can you turn you tune into that so the frequency in the room uh and and know what people are looking for from you i call this behavioral negotiation that when you're you have to both be true to yourself who you are but also be the leader people need and so do you need to stand up and give direction do you need to create space being able to sense that is really important when it comes to the situation we talk about driving to the knowns which is continually and systematically building your understanding of what's happening so if you've got an incident you, there's some things you know right away. There's been an explosion or an intrusion, whatever it happens to be. You know some initial questions to ask. Those are your known unknowns. Anybody hurt or injured? Are the bad guys still around? Anything been taken? Those kind, of, those kind of questions you know to ask. But then to go deeper into the things that is so what we call the, the, the unknown knowns, is that things that someone knows that you don't. And so what other, you know, being a subject matter expert you want to reach out to, um, just finding others who've been through similar situations. What can inform you, inform your view of what's going on? And then finally, what we you know, the unknown unknowns are the things you have to admit you're not going to be able to know. So right now that we're you know in the, in the it seems to be an endless pandemic. Knowing when the U.S. is going to get to herd immunity, nobody knows that at this point, and you're not going to know that until you get very close to what's happening. So don't pretend you can guess or forecast, but know that it's a guess. And so systematically say, okay, what do I actually know? What if I confirmed what's, you know, actual fact we can, we can say that we know this. What questions are we trying to answer? Who are we asking them from? What other things might we know, we'd like to know and somebody might know them. And then finally admitting the things that you cannot know until they happen or are close to it. That really helps you build a really nuanced view of the situation. And where you need to put your effort and where you need to, how you need to deploy your resources. And then finally, you know, the connectivity piece of be thinking about how do you build relationships, how do you build those positive relationships with people? And this fairly straightforward, uh, the formula I like to use, I borrowed from Charles Green, who wrote The Trusted Advisor. Um, and he talks about being credible, being reliable investing in building relationships, so actually getting to know people and being a good contributor, as we just talked about. And that's sort of your numerator, your denominator is your um, self-interest. So you want a low number there. You, actually want to, you want to be invested in the larger mission. So if you're highly credible, highly reliable, you're focused on building relationships, you get a big number on top. If you are minimizing your self-interest in, in service of that greater good, that larger mission, that gives you a high, what they call a trust, trust quotient, but it really, those are the, the, to me, the building blocks of, uh, of how to build the relationships you're going to need. And so we talk people through that and, sort of, and again, understanding these things all take some intentional effort in order to be able to, to bring together, because you, you do all this simultaneously. It's not like it's a linear process. It's, a, it's putting these things together simultaneously.
0: Right, it's a constant puzzle being put together. But what's what's really interesting, and you know, I'm not out to fight culture wars or anything. Believe me, but but it it strikes me that more more than ever, we're I'm going to use um, the analogy boiled like a frog, okay, which means we're unconsciously being Uh, almost seduced, if you will, by so many different things in our culture, our society and our businesses today, that's almost promoting a me culture versus a we. Are you seeing that too? And and if so, let's just say, let's go back. I love love when you said we have a built-in nature of reciprocity. I love that. We're hardwired to give back. Uh, How do we how, if, if it's true, we're getting boiled like a frog. Things are making us think of ourselves before others. If that's true, and yet we're hardwired to give
1: back, how, how do you bridge those two? Well, I, I it's a very it's a very good point, Ron. And I think that there is a lot of pressure, and there's a lot of sort of instant gratification for thinking of yourself. And we have a lot of you know, everything from you know the, the way our recognition and rewards happens in organizations to how much we're pressured to pre, you know, to preen and, and strut our stuff on LinkedIn and other platforms. So we're very much focused on ourselves. Um, but you also see, and maybe it's because of the people I get to work with, there is a lot of we. I work a lot with the military, public safety, people in healthcare, people in preparedness, they're very much invested in their communities and in the we. And yeah, I think even in our polarization, Um, they're sort of dueling we's on each side of the cultural divide. That said, when you bring people together, you know, I get traveled to all parts of the country, all parts of the world. So I meet a lot of different people. I've never talked to anybody who wasn't concerned about a better life for their kids or wanting a safe and secure community or wanting access to decent health care. Everybody wants that. And that's, you know, part of the, the, what makes my life interesting and also a little bit easier than some folks in dealing with leadership in terms of talking about the human factors, we are all human beings. So there's certain things about us as humans that are fundamental. We are a social species. We know that scientifically. That's how we survived. You know, you look back over the millennia, we weren't the strongest or the fastest species out there, but we learned to get to work together, both to hunt and for protection. So we had that social that social uh, nature built into us. Um, but it is a matter of consciously overcoming it, and I think trying to the more we try and focus on the we, this is part of the job of leaders is to is to, to bring that we to life. Um, the, the it's there to draw out of people. It really is. Right.
0: You mention um, you mention some key words uh, when you're talking about leadership being prepared. Again, a leader can be many different, uh, have very, uh, different contexts, but you talk about this idea, some very basic skill sets, clarify, adapt, uh, and, uh, you probably can help me, uh, clarify, adapt you, uh, uh, and, and how you do that. Some tricks to the trade, especially when you were talking about the pandemic and some of your, uh, in some of of your presentations, can you give us some kind of ideas on how we can best communicate, clarify, and adapt through our agility and responsiveness?
1: Certainly. And I I do think one one of a leader's biggest jobs, toughest jobs, is to create clarity. Because crises, even routine times these days, because things are moving quickly, it's hard for everybody to be clear about what's the mission, what are our priorities, how do I contribute, where do I fit in? And to the extent that you, if you're trying to lead, can bring some clarity to that. And part of it is is you have to be a a good communicator and a consistent communicator and be a bit flat-footed sometimes. Let's not forget folks, we are here to serve the community. You know, healthier people or whatever it happens to be, say it and say it over and over and have it be a lot of places. Um, you know, I have, I had the pleasure to, uh, to spend time at City Year, which is the progenitor to AmeriCorps, uh, young people who, who, uh, give a year of service in exchange for a, st- a small stipend started here in Boston. And they've done the most amazing job I have ever seen. They drew on Joseph Campbell's power of the myth in terms of symbology and uh, symbolism and the way they built the culture and the organization, everything they do from the what's on the sleeve of the jacket, to what's on the wall, to the colors they choose, the symbols they use. Every bit is designed to reinforce this nature that we are working together to serve the community. Here's our mission. And so it becomes very, very clear and it boils down to everything they do. And so I think that, you know, again, often senior executives can think, well, you know, we put it in the annual report or I've got a mission statement, therefore it's clear. That's nice, but probably, you know, that's not going to get you everywhere. You've got to bake it down into what you're doing every single day. How does it, how is it reflected in all your, what you're trying to do? So creating that clarity of why are we here? Why are we together? And then I think in terms of, of adaptation, which is the other key concept here, we need to stop talking about change as if it's a periodic occurrence. You know, we have a change initiative for the next six months, we're going to change and then we're not going to change for a while until we change again. I think you have to start talking about change as constant because when you're talking about change in that way, it's no longer something to fear, but it's another skill to master. How do I do do this change thing? How do I get better at it over time? It's just like you learned how to operate your computer. You learn other social skills that get you to work. You know what the organization values and how how you're going to succeed and get ahead. When you make change, one of those things, it it now becomes an opportunity for people. So it, it reduces that fear factor, because I think you know, particularly if you're going into crisis. But even when if there's not a crisis involved, we are we're needing to change on a, on a much more frequent basis to keep up with all to all the changes around us, be it environmentally through climate change, culturally, what's happening with technology. Mastering that ability to change and be be comfort with the, with the comfortable with the discomfort of ambiguity, and and making those shifts, making those pivots. Um, so modeling that, but but talking about it in a way that change becomes the norm, not something abnormal. Where oh we're going to go through a reorg and we're going to lose ten percent of our people and I'm going to wind up sitting in a different desk and oh my god that's horrible. Um, but rather talking about it as this is how we remain relevant. This is how you, we, you and we are going to succeed. Um, that's really, really important. And that all depends on a foundation of trust. You know, you've got to build a trust-based environment. And, I've, you know, you can do that in many ways, being transparent with people, creating that clarity, um, recognizing rewarding contributions. And I think even when, again, in a period of a lot of change, there are people who are going to come and go from your organization. If someone has to move on, whether you're doing it or they're doing it, Treat them as as generously as you can, because that makes it less fearful for people who may wind up getting moved out because they're no longer relevant to what you're trying to do. Uh, But it also creates an enormous amount of goodwill because you may want them back a year or two from now, or you may want their friends to come work for you. And uh, I think the companies certainly that have done this um, find tremendous benefit. To it's you know if again if things are changing and someone has it has to be is no longer longer gonna be with us, not because they weren't a good performer or just because things have changed. Let's be generous on the way out because it's not their fault. And let's just treat them the way we'd wanna be treated ourselves. So I think if you, you know, the clarity, building in that constant talk of change and adaptation and really trying to foment a a culture based on trust, uh, those are gonna serve you really, really well in the years ahead.
0: So I'm gonna poorly attempt to summarize what I've learned from just this short time with you, and I so much appreciate it. You inspire me in so many different ways. Um, you started with helping your people know themselves. They have they come from a place their origin story, and uh, and they also are living in your story. Right right? So the company's story is our story. It's not a Bill Gates' story. It's not Jeff Bezos' story. It's our story. That's right. And I can see my, how my origin and how I see my future can be uh, realized within this story right. that I'm living in, right? And, and I'm hearing this. And why is that so important that you led with Know Thyself? Because if you can capture that thread all the way through this and create people who look forward to the next chapter in the story, otherwise known as change, then you, you're writing a masterpiece.
1: I like the way you've summarized that. You've put it into a real good narrative structure. That's what's wonderful. That's your I, writing background.
0: Well, you know, you and you, you—you inspired me here. Um, when I when I first heard you, and I can't wait to read this book. By the way, uh, by the way, everybody, if you haven't uh, discovered it uh, in the blog when this is published, we're putting links into uh, some of Eric's uh, uh, online and in-house uh, training programs as well, uh, which I'm really going to suggest you look into. Uh, but what if if we can capture this? This is it change becomes one of the best competitive advantages you can build into your organizations people
1: absolutely because i think that you know to me the number one source of competitive advantage right now is the ability to accelerate learning and that's all about change and the openness to change and that's in crisis in particular but also in routine times if you can accelerate learning which means not getting too wedded to the status quo knowing you're going to change knowing things are going to evolve the organizations that do that best are going to be the ones that are most successful. That's right.
0: And and also, again, because you brought up context at the beginning, situation, you called it, in context, know thyself, know who you are in a particular situation, uh, leading down, up, across, beyond. Um, when you're bringing all that up, I get the sense from you you're leading also with empathy. So in a crisis situation you first have to, you know, check the pulse before you right. start going to the change initiative as a result of that, right? Check the pulse
1: first. That's right. You're, because you know, at the end of the day, you are working with people, we are emotional beings. We we need to have that it, it helps greatly if we feel the the leader understands what what we're seeing, what we're feeling and has our back in this. Um, and again, it doesn't guarantee everything's gonna turn out right for everyone. Um, but if you know someone cares and they are leading in an empathic way, it's, it, you can do amazing things with people. I know if I can tell a brief story, one of my favorites from, and this is Thad Allen, who I've had a, the pleasure of working with on several occasions. But during the Katrina response, when things were not going well, and he took over from Mike Brown, who was relieved of duty as head of FEMA, and, and he came down to a, it was an abandoned mall in Baton Rouge where a lot of the federal workers were were assembled and trying to do their jobs. And, and again, really demoralized looking at the media and hearing bad things. And he pulled a bunch of them together, as many as he could get. And he stood up on top of the table with a, with a bullhorn and he said, folks, here's how we're gonna do things going forward. I want you to treat everyone you encounter as if they're a member of your family. If you do that, you won't make a mistake doing too little. You'll make a mistake doing too much. And if anyone's got a mistake, a problem with you make, doing too much, they haven't got a problem with you. They've got a problem with me. That in about 45 seconds said, we're going to be okay. I have confidence in you to get this done. I want you to, here's how I want you to do it, which is in a way that is very empathic and goes to the natural desire to help people in need. And oh, by the way, if anyone's got an issue with that, they have to deal with me. I've got your back. Boom. It's sort of the perfect he said you, you could feel the barometric pressure in the room change after that and that's leading with empathy and you know that is a big admiral guy he's a big burly guy it's not like he's all soft and cuddly but he understood you had to address those emotional needs if you wanted to get people operationally highly functional
0: if you want to matter when it matters most pick up this book by Eric McAulte. This has been a great conversation, Eric. Thank you so much.
1: Rob, my pleasure. Thank you.